0: Father, as we come to your word, as Kit prayed, we are desperate. We can't think rightly about what we hear. We can't even see correctly or hear correctly without the powerful work of your spirit, the one who illuminates hearts and minds to believe the truth. And Father, we do face a very real enemy that your word tells us seeks to devour us, is roaming around seeking to devour us. And we're going to see as we open the gospel of Mark, his evil work and your victorious reign. Lord, I pray today that as we gather and as we open your word, that every one of us would be made different because of who you are and what you have done. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we stand for the reading, I want to give a couple of comments about the context of Mark's story recorded in Mark chapter 10. It's most Bibles, it's titled something like the rich young ruler or the rich young man. It's not primarily about money, except that money is the thing that's keeping this man from Jesus. And just like this man had an idol, he had a a God, a small G God that was keeping him from receiving the good news of Christ, we have the same problem constantly. And we're going to have the same problem this side of heaven. And because of where we live, which spiritually speaking is the poorest place on earth, did you hear what I said? Spiritually speaking, this is the poorest place on earth. The reason that's true is because Jesus is about to say, you'll hear it, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we are in a rich place, in a rich church. Now, immediately you might be thinking, well, I'm not as rich as so-and-so. Yes, I understand. And there's some people in our church who really are living in poverty, and we're grateful that you're here. And there's certainly people worshiping with us online from all over the world. It's amazing, who are living in many difficult, extreme situations. Yet for us, we are greatly blessed with enormous resources but is that really a blessing not if we miss the barrier that it is not if it becomes our God and we will not embrace or receive the one who is the true God so I say those words because as we open this text, it's so easy for us who've been in the church a long time to think, I've heard this story, what more can I gain? Well, that's never true. You've never heard the story enough. You've never heard the exhortation enough. This side of heaven, there will always be room in your life and mine for the living word to do its work. It's so easy for us to have our eyes set horizontally, thinking even now, boy, a lot of people need to hear this. And if you're saying that, you're right. And that's what I'm thinking about you. (laughs) We all need to hear it because it is the word of God that tells us this enemy really seeks to devour us. He wants all of us. The enemy does. But so does Christ. Christ did not come to live and die so he could have a portion of you. He did not come to live and die so you could simply treat Jesus like a condiment that's sprinkled on parts of your life. He came for all of you. And whatever is in front of him in your life, and there is something there or some things there, he's coming to kill it because of his grace and his glory. Now what's happening in this passage is Jesus, once again, is teaching a radical message of what it means to follow him. It's not primarily just the Christian worldview. That's really important. But if you only see it as that, it won't have the power that it's meant to have. This is Jesus saying, I'm calling you to a radical relationship with me that will transform all parts of your life. And the message of Mark from the beginning to the end is, You see, but you don't see. You hear, but you don't hear. And once again, Mark, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is going to use this encounter between Jesus and and this rich young man to show us something thousands of years later that we need to see, even as he teaches his 12 who are listening in. It's an amazing story, full of contrast, and I promise you, you've not seen it all. Let's stand. The reading of God's word. I'm going to begin in Mark chapter 10. And it's not printed in your bulletin, but I want to read the two verses just ahead of it because it shows us the first contrast. So I'll read two verses, then I'll hit 17. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them, the children in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. There is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. In this incredible story, and I want to be clear, it's not a parable. This is an actual conversation that took place. In this encounter between this rich young man and Jesus and the disciples who are following Jesus, they're certainly present, there are at least 12 contrasts. Now, I'm not going to preach a 12-point sermon, but I am going to highlight these 12 contrasts under two categories followed by a third. These are the categories. First, I want to look at the conversation between Jesus and the rich man. And I want to see the contrasts that are present. And then I want to look at the conversation that takes place between Jesus and the disciples as he teaches them from the encounter with the rich young ruler. And then I want to talk about the individual conversation that you and I must have with the very same God. So first, this This whole story is born in a context. Jesus has just said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child shall not enter it. So a child is desperate, dependent, helpless. And the very next verse, as Jesus starts out on his journey, you see the first contrast. There is a man who is not helpless. He's rich, and Luke tells us he's also a ruler. So he has many possessions, which we find so much security in that, and he also has power, which we also find security in that. So that contrast starts this. Power and possessions easily keep us from feeling helpless and dependent on someone. But this man does feel helpless at some level, because even though he has all this wealth and all this power, he still has this burdening question. How can I know I'm going to live forever in heaven? How can I know I'm going to make it after I die into that eternal glorious place? And so he knows enough that it's his wealth And it's his power that will fall short. And he's no casual follower. I believe he's been following Jesus. He's heard these things that Jesus is saying. And so watch what he does. He actually runs towards Jesus. You can sense the the enthusiasm, the, the, the joy that he's hoping to hear as he goes and he asks Jesus the question that's burdening his heart. Verse 17, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to pay attention to all the details that Mark gives us. This man, it says, as Jesus was on his journey, ran up to Jesus. So as Jesus had put down the children is now mo- moving along his own journey, they're not running, but this man is. And out of nowhere, a rich man who's a young man who's a ruler falls at the feet of Jesus. He's showing respect. He's showing honor. He is also showing a measure of desperation. And he says, good teacher. Here you see the first contrast in this conversation. The difference between man's definition of goodness and God's definition of goodness. He kneels before Jesus. Verse 17 says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a response from Jesus why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Now there's something happening here. Jesus is good. He's perfect. And in a sense, he is letting them know I am God. But why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. He then goes on to say, you know, the commandments Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus points to part of the commandments, primarily the second tablet. And is this man who has his own definition of goodness, hears those things. What is he thinking? Check, check, check. I've not done those things. I've not committed adultery. I've not murdered someone. I've not defrauded someone. I've not been false witness. What is he saying? I am what? Good. Jesus just said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see the contrast, the contrast is between man's view of goodness and God's view of goodness. Friends, God's view of goodness is spoken here. Only God is good. There is no one who does righteous, no, not one. You and I are constantly tempted to believe in the old mindset that says if you are good enough or maybe just better than the person next to you or in front of you or behind you, you're going to be okay. That is not the gospel. In fact, you see the contrast a little bit earlier. Another contrast. It's actually in the man's question. Let's look at the question again. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Friends, you don't do something to inherit something. You receive inheritance. Not because of what you have done. There is a massive contrast here between the gospel, the true gospel, and a men-centered worldview that says, if I do enough good things, do enough right things, then I'll make it. And that's what drives the majority of religions in the world. His question reveals the contrast that is faulty. When a person joins this church and we ask them the five questions, we speak about this we say, do you rest and receive Jesus alone for salvation he's offered in the gospel? That's the only way. If you have come today thinking this is a faithful presence of mind that's going to make me look better before God. And therefore, if I do it enough times a year, and even if I sing loud and maybe give a little more money, that's going to help too, you're missing the gospel. The gospel is contrasted to the world's view we will never be good enough we only have one who is and we don't do enough to make him love us that's why we sing and can it be we simply receive what he's done for us this is what the man is hearing jesus then after the man essentially hears jesus say no one is good except god alone the man then says i am good i've kept those things Jesus then says in verse 21, looking at him, I don't want to miss this, looking at him. Never miss those words when you read a passage. The Greek word here means more than just seeing him, It means looking at, at him intensely. It means looking at him with his mind. In other words, it's Jesus seeing what truly is at the heart of this man. And what's going to be the thing that keeps him from the kingdom of God. And looking at him, Mark tells us, and and just imagine Peter describing this to Mark as Mark's writing it. Peter remembers that look. Looking at him, it says that Jesus loved him. That's the agape love, that choice to love the unlovable. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. I don't know if there was a pause between what Jesus said next, but his spirit, when he heard you lack one thing, was probably kind of excited. There is one thing. There is one thing I can do. One more box to check, then it's settled. I'll have an eternal life. Jesus, we don't know how long he paused. If he even did, he tells them the truth. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. The contrast here is between treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. This man, whether he inherited it or worked for it or both, was wealthy, and that wealth was a treasure that brought him great security. So unpacking treasures on heaven versus treasures on earth, we see that same temptation. It's the contrast between false security and true security. Money is a false security. It will not last for eternity. No matter how much you accumulate, money will never last for eternity it is a false security and friends this side of heaven we are all tempted to put our security in insecure things and money is the great one money is not in itself evil it's the love of money that is evil and we love money because we find security in what it brings but it's a false security I love Psalm 16. I love the the paradigm of Psalm 16 where you, you hear the psalmist essentially saying, God will lead you body and soul through life and through death into everlasting happiness if he is your safest refuge, if he is your supreme treasure, if he is your sovereign Lord, if he is your most trusted counselor. So if I'm the enemy and I want the people to fall to me, I want all of them, then what I'm going to do is offer them something other than God being their safest refuge, something other than God being their supreme treasure. I want to minimize the sovereign view of God, and I want something other than God to be their most trusted counselor, and that's what Satan does. He wants us to put something in front of God as our great treasure as our supreme treasure, as our safest refuge. Jesus, looking at this man, sees what he has put in front of God. And what Jesus brilliantly did was showed him that in his own self-righteousness, the man's self-righteousness, he sees the second tablet. I've done those things. I've been good. But then Jesus says, yes, but the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me You've broken. Money is your God. And if it was true in this man's life, it's certainly true in this community. It's certainly true in our country. It's true around the world. Money is such a strong snare that promises security that is false, that is not eternal. When this man hears it, the word tells us that he was disheartened. Verse 22 disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Two times, Mark makes sure we get the point. He was disheartened. The word sad is not strong enough. It's actually the same word that Matthew uses in his gospel to describe a dark storm that is coming. When this man heard these words from Jesus, as Jesus is looking at him with love, his countenance began to change because there was something in him that was hearing this truly good man, God himself, saying, there is one thing you lack. And when Jesus told him what to do, you see this enormous contrast. The enormous contrast between the man's material wealth and his spiritual debt. The man was so wealthy that the thought of doing what Jesus told him to do sounded horrible. Though what Jesus was telling him to do was the very thing that would save him for all eternity. Do you see the contrast? It's really the contrast between bad news and good news. You see, the problem is the man saw the wrong statement as bad news. The man saw giving up all that he had in order to follow Jesus and live forever as bad news. When what Jesus was offering him was good news. Now, I want to be clear about something. This is an individual account of a man, and Jesus is not making an imperative about how we are all to live in some aesthetic way. He's not calling all of us to leave today and sell everything we have. But this is the problem. Sometimes we hear that and quickly feel like, I'm off the hook. I've dealt with this passage. I've dealt with money. Me, my wife, my family, my friend, we think rightly about it. We're, we're good. I'm going to be very, very honest. You're never going to be done dealing with money until you die or Jesus Christ returns. That snare is too strong. That's like somebody who truly struggles with the addiction of alcohol or drugs or pornography or something like that saying, I I did treatment. I'm good. I don't need to be worried. They don't think that way because they know the snare is so great. They know that the battle's going to be every day. And, friend, the snare of money, offering you the illusion of security, is something that's going to affect all of us until we die or Christ returns. The good news is, Christ wants all of you, not just some of you, all of you. And he has the ability to look inside your life and see how has this false security revealed itself to you in true security. He has. He has the ability to do that and the grace to follow it. But when he exposes that in us, do we receive that truth with joy, knowing that he's making us more like himself, sanctifying us, or with sadness. And if it's sadness, it reveals the clutch that materialism and wealth have on us. You see all the contrast? It's pretty amazing. To make sure that the disciples saw the contrast, the man walks away disheartened and sad, sorrowful. So Jesus, with those same eyes that was looking intensely at the man, We're told in verse 23, and Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, Now here's the contrast that he brings before them. First is this it's the barrier of wealth versus the blessing. This is really important to see. Remember one of Mark's favorite words? It's astonished. Mark is gonna use it twice here with an adjective before the second time talking about how exceedingly astonished they were at what Jesus said, and it's because of the contrast. Jesus says in verse 23, "'How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God.'" Friends, I wanna ask you a question. Do you really believe that's true? If it's true of our justification, of this wealth keeping us from Jesus, I promise you it's also true of our sanctification. Wealth is something that the devil uses as a powerful snare to keep us from surrendering all to God. And he wants all of us. So do you really believe the words of Jesus? The disciples were hearing something that was shocking to them. I don't know if it's shocking to us jesus says back to verse 23 how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of god and the disciples were amazed at his words they were astonished jesus then says children how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of god it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of god Verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Well, this is why they were astonished. They did not associate wealth as a barrier to the kingdom. This was their view of prosperity gospel. They believed that it was a sign of blessings from God if you had wealth. In one sense, it is. There are wealthy people in the Old Testament and New. God used them and they were faithful. But in this case, Jesus is making a strong point, a strong warning. Wealth is a barrier. And wealth can become a God so easily that Jesus said, these are his words it's difficult for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom. They were shocked. This was one of those radical teachings of Jesus that blew their mind. He goes on to say it, children, and he brings in another contrast. He brings in the contrast of a camel going through the eye of the needle and a rich man entering the kingdom. Children, have you ever ridden a camel? I have. It was in China, not the Holy Land, but I climbed up on one and it took off. It took off running as fast as it could. There was no saddle. I didn't know what to do. I fell off. I wasn't injured. But a camel's a big animal. Some have tried to make the case that there's this entrance into the temple that's primarily what Jesus is talking about. Don't think that's true. I think this is simply hyperbole that Christ is using to say, this is how hard it is. For the rich to enter the kingdom wealth is a barrier it's difficult so they're exceedingly astonished friends we need to be exceedingly astonished at the word of god when we treat jesus just like a worldview, it's not that big a deal to us he is saying this is hard so then the disciples out of this exceedingly astonished place say to jesus then who can be saved and we see another contrast. Jesus himself brings it. He says in verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The contrast. With man it is impossible, for a wealthy person to be saved or any person to be saved, but not with God. With God, all things are possible, but only with God. He then highlights perhaps the last contrast in the final verse of this section, verse 31. He says, but many who are first will be last and last first. That is a message that the disciples are going to have a hard time understanding because just a few verses later, James and John will be asking Jesus if they can sit to his right and to his left. They're dense. They're dense. Spiritually, they're dense. And so are we. And the same God who spoke those words is speaking to us. And so the conversation moves from the conversation between Jesus and this man and Jesus and and the disciples to Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Too often, people in the church look at others to see if they're spiritually flat. Look at others to see if they're giving sacrificially. Look at Friends, the eyes of Christ are piercing on you and he sees your heart, the condition of your heart. We're a corporate body and we need to be concerned with one another, but the best way we can be concerned with one another is if we're listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us about any snare that is in our life. And it might not be money in yours, but I bet it's pretty close to the top. It is for most of us, but it could be something else. It could be reputation. It could be power, position, any number of things. But Jesus wants all of you, not just some of you, all of you. So when we take the text and the power of the Holy Spirit and ask him to show us any part of us where there is a God or God's little G's in front of the God. How do we respond? Well, the first question is this, have you received Jesus alone for salvation? If not, this is where you start. And maybe that's why you're here today or watching online with us. Maybe today is the day in which you'll say this makes sense. I now know that I could never do enough to enter the kingdom. I now know enough that it's simply receiving Christ and his work on the cross, his resurrection, his reign, his being Christ and savior, that I receive him alone for salvation. Pray and ask him to have mercy and save you. For those of you who are already in Christ, this side of heaven, the struggle will continue to be present for you and I to put other gods in front of God other things that become our safest refuge, our supreme treasure. So is money in the way for you? You need more time than the five seconds to think about it right now. You need to ask God that question all the time because the snare is that great. Is money a God to you? Ask him to show you if it is, in the way in which you give to the church, in the way in which you give to other ministries, in the way in which you spend money on yourself or on others, is money a God for you? God will expose it if it is. He'll also provide the mercy needed to move you to repentance. How can I know if money is a God? The normative way in which believers have been called to give is to first give from the first. To give from the top of what God has given you, which means you first recognize that all you have has been given to you. And your responsibility and privilege as a believer is to start there with the first fruits of your crops and to give to the Lord. Secondly, it's normative for Christians to give generously sacrificially, joyfully, because we're giving to the one who has given us everything. Does giving away what he has given you make you walk away sad? You see, that's the final contrast. The man approached Jesus running. Good teacher. What must I do? But he walks away disheartened and sad friends. There's another way in Luke's gospel. Just after the story of the rich young ruler in the next chapter, Luke tells the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and he wanted to see the real Jesus in order to see the real Jesus he climbed up a tree he got above the crowd as Tim Keller would say to see the real Jesus some of us need to climb above the crowd to see the real Jesus and stop looking at one another and comparing our sanctification to each other. That's called, what, that's called cruise control Christianity. Jerry Bridges said that. It's where we look at one another and how they're doing it. We set the cruise control on and then we just coast. Jesus did not come and die and rise from the dead in order for you and I to put it on cruise control and coast. Turn the cruise control off. Get out of that lane. Hit the accelerator as God calls you to and go. When Zacchaeus climbed above the crowd to see the real Jesus, what he discovered is that the real Jesus was coming to see him. Jesus speaks to him in the midst of the whole crowd. And Zacchaeus is hated because he's cheated people. Jesus calls him down and he says, I must stay in your house today. He never tells Zacchaeus to give anything away. He never says, sell your possessions. But what happens inside Zacchaeus' heart is so great that in Luke 19, we're told that he says, I will give away half. And if I've defrauded, and I think people laughed at that. (laughs) And if I've defrauded, you know, he defrauded people constantly. I will pay them back. You see, there is another way. Tradition tells us in certain places that some believe the rich young ruler returned to Christ. Biblically, we can't prove that. But what we can say is that many, many, many people, including people in this church and in this community, which is set in the poorest place on earth spiritually, have had a different response to Jesus. And those who have had a different response to Jesus than walking away disheartened and sad, would be the first ones to tell you, but I know between now and the rest of my life, it will be a battle that I need to constantly keep before the Lord to make sure that money doesn't become my safest refuge, my supreme treasure, my most trusted counselor. Friends, Zacchaeus would climb down that tree only one day, not long from them, to know that Jesus was on the tree. And Jesus would die for all of his people so that all who would receive him could live forever. That's why when we close with this song and sing, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Father in heaven, The enemy would love right now for all of us to simply think we've just heard a message about go and do. We don't have the power, Father, to do enough to make you accept us. But we can receive you and rest in you alone for salvation, and we can receive and rest in you alone to sanctify us, to show us once again what thing or things might be occupying the place in our life that you alone deserve. So Father, would you let mercy and grace and love and your glory be the very things that motivate us to ask the question, is there anything more important in my life than the Lord Jesus Christ? And Holy Spirit, if there is, set us free. That we might not walk away sad and disheartened, but with full heart and full joy for the grace that we've been given in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.